Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Father, we just give you thanks this morning, Lord, that you are good. And we give you thanks, Lord, that your plans for us are perfect. Yes. And Lord, we, we, we so magnify your name this morning, Lord. We make it bigger. We make you bigger, Lord. We make you bigger, Lord. May you be glorified, Lord, through everything I say, like Deji said. Lord, may, may everything I say that's of you land where it needs to land, Lord, in our hearts. Lord, to you be all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we were here last week, but for three previous weeks, preceding weeks, we weren't actually here. And the reason was we had various things happening. And over Easter, we went down to see Jackson and Jemima, you know, my eldest son, um, down in Cornwall where they're studying. And um, it was great to hang out with them, spend some time with them. You know, we went to church with them. They go to an Elim Pentecostal church. It's fantastic, really, really good. And um, have some fellowship with them, you know, have some meals with them, go for some walks, all that kind of stuff. But it came to that point towards the end where we were like, you know, we need to go back. It's Easter Monday. So we decided to go back at a particular time on Easter Monday. And you know, the journey from Cornwall, we can never seem to get it right. It's quite long. And, um, you know, it's quite laborious. So, you know, you, you kind of... You kind of go up from Falmouth past Exeter, and then you go up the M5 or, or across across countryside, and then up the M4. And so we were going up along the. We we got so far so good. It was very busy on the M5, and then we got into the M4, and we were just passing Bristol, and just past Bristol, we're getting onto the Bath turnoff, and then you know just about to go past that, and then the traffic slowed. Yeah, and the traffic slowed, and then there was two lanes closed, so I went over into the kind of one of the two right-hand lanes that was still open, and then it stopped altogether. And we were just approaching, we were just approaching the junction, so we waited there for a couple of minutes, and then I thought, I know, I'll do the junction hack. Do you know the junction hack? You know, you need to know it. Um, so what what you do on the junction hack is we were near enough to the junction to then pull over, go up to the junction, go up the slip road off, and then go to the roundabout in the hope that you'd get down the slip road the other side, and you'd you know you could just um, move past what was going on. Have you ever have you ever done that? I have to confess, I've done that a few times. So so we went up you know, got up as far as the roundabout. And then um, the roundabout was, was quite blocked, but we managed to kind of squeeze through on the right-hand side. The slip road down on, back onto the motorway was blocked. So we then decided to take a, a little tour around the roundabout. So as we were touring around the roundabout, I looked to my left and I could see the problem. The problem was that there was a vehicle fire and the, and the, the police had stopped all the traffic on the motorway and on the slip road. And there were fire engines putting out this vehicle fire. So. So we continued our circle around the roundabout because I wasn't really sure what to do and we just rejoined the queue. And then we queued there for probably about 20 minutes. And we were like queuing there, queuing there, not, nothing much happening, da da da, you know. And, um, and then I thought, I'll tell you what, 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 after a bit of discussion, I decided to kind of go round again and just have another look. So I went round, the, just managed to squeeze the car round, got somebody in front of me to pull just a couple of inches to the, to the left so I could get through, went round, looked down, and the, the fire was kind of at the point of being put out, but I just thought, do you know what? I've had it with this. I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to go down down the road towards you know the next junction. So I went you know so I went off the M4. I went south. I went east. I went back north. Beautiful countryside. And I thought, I wonder if my gambles paid off. You know, I wonder if my gambles paid off. And so as we were kind of he heading back up, we were going. I wonder if the traffic's restarted yet. You know, I wonder if my gamble's paid off. And so, so I got up to the, we got back up to the next round about the Chippenham turn off um, and we went to turn on and our gamble had not paid off, right? Because I reckon probably like moments after I went down that detour, the road was opened again, right? And that, the thing about that is that, um, the thing about that is that waiting thing, isn't it? You know, Deji brought a word to us at the beginning of this year saying, the Lord saying to us as a, as a fellowship, behold, I am doing a new thing. Behold, I am doing a new thing. You know, but the thing is, in the natural, we can look around 
nearing the end of April, and it might be easy for some of us to think, well, what is this new thing? What is this new thing? You know, there's some of us in a room, you know, and um, we're worshipping Jesus, yeah. But I'm here this morning to remind us about the importance of waiting with expectancy. Yeah. You know, because I could have waited in that mo at that motorway junction and probably like one minute after I left to take that detour, everything reopened, you know. Um, considering things from a human point of view, so often we look at things from a human point of view, you know, and we think, oh, nothing's changed. There's still the same amount of people, the same people, you know, there's nothing new. We're still in this little upper room, you know, and we think, what is this new thing that God God's doing, you know? And what I want to say this morning is like, how many things do we miss because of our inability to wait on the Lord? How many things do we miss because of our inability to wait on the Lord? How much of what God has got for us will only come to pass through us waiting for it? And how much is God actually doing in the waiting? You know, in the waiting, what is God actually doing? And we easily get distracted and we move on, you know, and... We find ourselves taking a massive detour, you know, like I did south and east and north again, you know, and um, nice roads, looks kind of nice, no traffic, but totally miles out the way. You know, that can be the story of our walk with Jesus if we decide to take that detour. And so today I want to look, first of all, at three things that stop us from waiting, three tools the enemy uses, first of all, um, to stop us from waiting. And the first of these is distraction, you know? Have you ever known that distraction? The enemy's tools of distraction are really big. You know, we have the parable of the soul. We're all familiar with it. And I, I was really interested when I looked at it the other day, because you know when you look at Scripture, Abby and I were talking about the, this this morning, you look at Scripture and you go, Hold on a sec, there's something that I've never seen before. Was that actually in scripture before today? You know, and so I was looking at the parable of the sower recently, and I realized that when Jesus talks about the, the seed that falls among thorns in Luke 8:14, he says that seed grows up but becomes choked. And he talks about the seed of the people who hear and they go on their way, they're choked by the anxieties, cares, and riches and pleasures of life. And the interesting thing I noticed about Luke 8:14 was this those people bear fruit. It says, those people bear fruit. But it then says, but it does not ripen, right? So I'd never thought that they bore fruit, those people, but it says that they bear fruit that doesn't ripen. And fruit which doesn't ripen can't be used, exactly. It, it, it doesn't taste sweet, you know? It looks good, but does not taste sweet. From a distance, you look at a tree with fruit that doesn't ripen on it, and you think, oh, that tree is doing really well. That fruit must look really good. But the trouble is, it does not take, taste good, you know? And it never comes soft to the touch, you know? So that's a warning from Jesus. And we know about those things, I'm sure many of us here, we all know about anxieties and cares. We know about, like, the riches and pleasures of life. But there's another, those are very overt distractions but there are some more covert distractions as well that he doesn't really tackle at that point for example if you think about you know I, I, I know of churches that have been really really fruitful in a particular ministry and then somebody comes on, comes along and says guys somehow they, they they get their way in they gain influence and they go guys I know we're doing this but maybe we should be doing that as well and they just completely derail what's going on because they're looking for something different than what God is actually doing. That can happen. Or an individual. It can happen on an individual basis. You know, and I think it happens a lot, actually, to the younger generation. Gen Z, for example, or millennials, maybe. I don't know if you know the difference. Um, but anyways, um, I think young people have this feeling quite often that somehow things haven't yet happened, so therefore they need to move on. You know, things haven't yet turned out according to what they thought they would in a particular organization. So maybe they need to kind of actually up sticks and find what God has for them to do. But actually what God has for them to do sometimes is right in front of them. Yes. It just requires persistence. It just requires like working on it and seeing it properly. 
you know. So the enemy uses this kind of, it's out there somewhere to try and tempt us away from what he has in here for us now. And that can happen so easily. He, make, he does it by making us feel like we're being unfruitful. Yeah, but the thing about fruit also is that fruit doesn't grow overnight, right? It takes time to grow good fruit. And so we don't need to worry about being fruitful. We just have to do what he asks us to do each day and the fruit comes. The second, the second um, distraction or thing that the enemy puts up for us is discouragement. How many of us have ever felt discouraged? I mean, in the last week, maybe, <laughs> you know? Discouragement. Discouragement is dangerous. What is the easiest response to discouragement? It's to act rashly, isn't it? You know, you just think, well, you know, I've had it with that. I'm just going to go and do this. And, and we, get, we get tempted out of where God wants us to wait with expectancy through discouragement. That can come, for example, at a time when, you know, we've been, we've been warring, you know, Spiritual warfare has happened and we've been warring and we just finished, we get a victory and then we go back into life and it's like, oh my gosh, that, you know, something comes along. Remember Elijah, it happened to him, you know, he, when, when he met Jezebel. After a massive victory, he kind, of, he kind of ran off into the desert, you know. So that happened to Elijah or, or David returning to Ziklag. Do you remember that story, you know, where he returns to Ziklag? I think it's 1 Samuel 29 or something like that. And he comes back from, from um, where he's been and, and, and he's, he, he comes back with his men and they find that Ziklag, the place he's been staying, has been sacked and the, all the women and children, all the stuff has been stolen. And his, his men turn on him and they, and they want to stone him. And what's David's response? Because David always gives us a good response, right? He doesn't always do the right thing, but he does in the end, always. And he gives us this response. It says, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, but, but he encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord. He encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord. He remembered the promises of God. He remembered that he was in covenant with God. And that's so important. The enemy knows when we're about to get breakthrough sometimes. Do you know that? And so what he does is he puts a massive discouragement in front of us just at that moment, just before we get breakthrough. And we go, we, just have, we can just so easily go the wrong way just at that moment. We think it's all done. Oh, I've had it with this. Da, 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 da. And we go the wrong way just at the moment that we are about to have breakthrough. So if you're discouraged this morning, this afternoon, I guess it is now, if you're discouraged this afternoon, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Amen. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. You know, because you are about to get breakthrough and your breakthrough is going to be big and you need to know that. Okay, so, so remember that breakthrough is coming. It's not far away. And, you know, I love King David and I love, you know, the Psalms. You go into the Psalms and you see David's honesty and you see his struggles. He's vulnerable. He's honest. But at the same time, you see his absolute understanding of the faithfulness of God. Yeah. The absolute understanding of the faithfulness of God. He's adamant about the faithful of the God of the, his covenant. And so David knows that when he waits and lingers, victory will be at hand. So let's briefly look at a few times that he reminds his listeners to wait on the Lord. I'm just, I was just amazed by this when I looked at it again, you know, this week. I, 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 looked, I started in Psalm 27. I love Psalm 27. Who doesn't? And it says, like, what, what would have become of me if I hadn't, had I not believed that I would not see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living? And then it says, wait for and hope for and expect the Lord. Be brave and of good courage and let your heart be stout and enduring. Yes, wait for and hope for and expect the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Hope for the Lord. Be, a brave, and good, be brave and of good courage. Psalm 31, 24. Be strong and let your, and let your heart take courage, all you all of us who wait for and hope for and expect the Lord. Be strong and of good courage. He's coming. He's coming. Let your mercy and loving... This is Psalm 33, 22. Let your mercy 
and loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us in proportion to our waiting and hoping for you. That's something, isn't it? <laughs> you know, let your mercy and loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us in proportion to our wait, waiting and hoping for you. Each of these three verses that, that I've read out, they're, they're, what interested me about them was that they're all at the end of the psalm that they're in. And that's interesting to me because the psalmist signs off from that song by just lingering and reminding us to linger there. So we may shut the book, but we linger in that place with him, waiting in expectancy in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, so we may shut the book, we finish that psalm, but that presence, we, we continue to wait on the Lord and our expectancy grows our trust, you know. Another three I'll go for. Psalm 37, seven. Be still and rest in the Lord. Wait for him and patiently lean yourself upon him. Okay, so we're going to do that now, actually. Let's, let's just... Let's just shut our eyes and lean on him. Let's lean on him. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. We lean on you, Lord. Like the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, lent, reclined on the Lord. We lean on you, Lord. Mm. Just feel his presence. Feel his heartbeat. Mm. Let's lean on the Lord. Mm. Those discouragements, we just bring them. We put them at his feet. We lean on him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, you hold us in your hands, Lord. Mm. Psalm 39, 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for and expect? My hope and expectation are in you. Turn to him now and just tell him that your hope and your expectation are in him. Thank you, Lord. <sighs> Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently and expectantly for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. You know that he hears your cry this morning. He, he's heard your cry this morning. You know. You know that your Goliath to him is very small. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. The third aspect, the third thing that I just want to bring now um, is about um, disunity. Disunity. Because what happens when we get discouraged and we get disappointed is that we don't, if we don't bring it to him in the secret place, we become, discouragement leads to disappointment, Disappointment then leads to blame because we go, oh, the things that I expected to happen haven't turned out how they should happen. And then relationships can suffer and disunity creeps in because we, see, we don't see things according to how we should. How many believers have left the church because of these three tools? Distraction, discouragement, disunity. How many churches have been split because of these things? You know, how many? I don't want to say. Or how many times have people just left, left the situation they're meant to be in because they moved on too quickly? They just moved on too quickly. It's mad, isn't it? Um, it's important that us at Commonwealth don't fall for these tricks of the enemy, but that we learn healthy waiting. And so this morning, you know, so that we can really think about what Deji was talking about when he gave this word, behold, I'm doing a new thing, we need to re it's going to require us to actively wait on the Lord. We need, to, we need to know about what healthy waiting is. This new thing might be completely in, imperceptible to us if we don't linger and listen, you know? Beholding something is seeing it and paying attention to it. 
you know, behold, I'm doing, I'm doing a new thing. It was so good last week to see 35 years of, and celebrate 35 years of Commonwealth. You know, what an amazing thing, wasn't it? You know, seeing those old pictures of people, seeing those events, you know, seeing, seeing all the times that were had, loads of really good times, seeing how the Lord worked, really amazing. And here we are in a small upper room, much, much fewer people, you know, let's be real. You know, I've got a front, front row of, of angels, which is good. Um, in the natural, we might think of ourselves as a, maybe a shadow of our former church, perhaps. But we don't see in the natural, do we? Because there's no life in the flesh. And let's think about it. Here we are. We're between Easter and Pentecost, right? Easter happened a couple of weeks ago. Pentecost is in a few weeks' time. We're a small group of followers of Jesus. We're in an upper room. I mean, what more, what more do we want? What could possibly happen here? What, what could possibly happen? And so this morning, to that end, I'm going I'm to look at Acts chapter 1. And we're going to just learn about healthy waiting from the early church because they had to healthily wait. There are five obvious things that we can learn from the passage which we're going to dip into. And the first one of them is obedience. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus says, remain in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Remain in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The di disciples were actually commanded to wait. That was Jesus' instruction just before the ascension, wait in the city. And he says it again in Acts, in Acts 1 verse 4. It says, while being in their company and eating with them, Jesus commanded them. It wasn't just a request, it was a command not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Right. To wait for what the Father had promised. While being in, the, in company and eating with them, he says, don't leave Jerusalem. My Father's promised this thing. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But you see, for God to pour out his Holy Spirit in that way, the conditions needed to be right. And so this period of time when they're obeying God is more important than anything else they could have ever done. It took complete priority, precedence over their lives. And we don't know what it looked like, frustratingly. You know, I want to go back there and just see what actually happened in that 40 days between Easter and Pentecost, or between the Ascension and Pentecost. You know, what actually happened? because it gives us a tantalizing glimpse. It says, Acts 1.13, and when they had entered the city, they mounted the stairs to the upper room where they were indefinitely staying, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. That's the other Judas. So they entered the city and mounted the stairs to the upper room where they were staying. So there, there they were. They, they obeyed and went up into that upper room. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what happened during that 40 days in its entirety. When we get to heaven, we can ask and find out. Um, but we do know some things, you know, because the second thing I'm going to talk about is expectancy. They had expectancy because they were told to wait for what the Father had promised. They knew the faithfulness of God. They knew that the Father's, the Father's promises of pouring out the Holy Spirit were going to come to pass. They knew that. They knew that they were going to be clothed with power from on high. There wasn't any argument about that. Jesus said, wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And they had seen Jesus move in power for three years. So they had him as an example. They saw what power looked like. You know, they saw people being raised from the dead, blind eyes opening. They saw Jesus heal crippled people. They saw, they saw Jesus call Lazarus from his tomb, you know, and that wasn't that many days before this either. Let's think about that, you know. So they had, they had his example, and they, they had been sent out two by two, those, those apostles, and they'd marveled at the power that they'd been given to the authority to, to drive out demons. So they had total expectancy of God moving. They knew that it was certain that the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. They knew it. And they knew it was big as well. You know, we've had some times here, some really sweet times here over the last few months, you know, of the presence of God. You know, that silent waiting, you know, 
that can only be, I, I, I don't know how to compare it in the natural to anything, because it's, it's not like anything, but it's, the, on, the, the only thing I could compare it to would be, when it's, when it's snowed and there's like a proper amount of snow, you know, and, and, and you just get that crispness, that quiet, because everything is muffled, because the presence of the Lord is so great. We've had that here, you know, and um, it's been so sweet. But can you imagine 40 days in the upper room, the level of expectancy, the waiting that had happened, 40 days. We've had minutes of it. They had 40 days, 40 days of waiting on the Lord and, you know, his presence becoming increasingly tangible. You see, my conviction is that this, this new thing that the Lord is doing is big. It's really big, you know, and I have that conviction because look around you, the last couple of days even, I mean, look at the thousands of Muslims who went and celebrated Eid on Friday. You know, look at the Ramadan lights in Oxford Street. I mean, I ask you, look at them. You know, really, Extinction Rebellion, you know, yesterday. Earth Day being celebrated. Paganism, complete paganism. The utter chaos within many of our services. You know, Tina's working in, in the NHS. She sees, she sees chaos in some areas. The huge number of young people who are referring themselves to gender reassignment services. Think about it. I went to, a, I mean, this was like three years ago, like just before COVID, I went to a Christian school's like, meeting of like uh, senior leaders. And one guy said, there's 18 young people in my school transitioning and the youngest is four. Yeah. You know. And we look around and we see the church in this nation and much of it is filled with apathy or confusion, you know? How much does our nation need Jesus? How much does our nation need Jesus? I mean, I could go on, you know? There's stuff here I'm not going to say because kids are in the room, you know? I'm not talking about some little self-created religious Jesus that we need. We need the real Jesus in this nation. Our nation needs Jesus, not some figment of the religious imagination that we conjure up, you know, who's all meek and mild and lovely and doesn't actually do anything, you know. We're not talking about that Jesus. Our nation needs the real Jesus, you know. And the only way that our nation is going to see the real Jesus is through people like us. That's the only way. He hasn't got a plan B. You know, he's not, he's not going to come back until all, all people have heard about him. Yeah? So in that, in that interim, it's us. You know? Men, women, children. You know, you don't, there's no age qualification. You know, it's just people who know the righteousness of in, their righteousness in Christ, who know the scriptures, who know the power of God. It's, it's, saints, it's us, it's you. Your country needs you. You know? We need, we're needed as never before. Yeah. So how much do we expect that we're going to receive power from on high? Yeah. How much? You bet I do. Because if I don't have it, this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. And that's not happening. Not on our watch, you know. This power is going to include signs and wonders and miracles. That is what the Lord has for us. Absolutely it is, you know. So... You know, we can't, we can't just be going, oh, well, I could have prayed for them, but I didn't. It's like, you know, I do expect to see God move, you know. So this morning I'm here to build your expectancy. You know, anyone who needs, not that there's anyone here, of course, who needs shaking out of apathy or shaking out of disappointment, discouragement, cynicism, you know, or just thinking, oh, it's just another day. There's just going to be another day tomorrow. And so it goes on. You know, that's not happening. Not, not, not here. Not now. And so in this waiting that we have now, while we wait, the Lord is actually preparing, preparing us. I mean, let's think about the upper room again before the Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts 2. Did they have the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1? Yes, of course they had the, Acts, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Do we have the Holy Spirit now? Of course we have the Holy Spirit now. He's in each of us. That's what, that, that's what he promises. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We, we have it. We have him. We have him. 
We know the answer to what were the disciples in the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus himself breathed on them. You know, at the end of John's gospel, we see it, you know. So that's a good thing, you know. That's a really good thing. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so in this waiting that we have, Holy Spirit is with us as well. But do you know what? He's coming again in greater power, in greater measure. That's what's going to happen, you know. And I have complete conviction about that, complete conviction. But this waiting, just like in the upper room, is one of preparation, okay? Because he needs every person in the right place in order to do his work, okay? And so the third aspect that we can learn from this, from Acts 1, is this thing of full agreement. And it's Acts 1, 14 that we want to look at. Thanks, Jonathan, you're a superstar. Um, Seriously. All of these, with their minds in full agreement, devoted themselves steadfastly to prayer, waiting together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, full agreement. Think about this. You know, before this point, the disciples were in the upper room, not that many weeks before this, you know, at the Last Supper. And, you know, Jesus breaks bread and drinks wine with them and, and tells them about his suffering and his death, come, which is coming up very sharply. And what's the next verse say in Luke? It says, an eager contention rose among the disciples about which of them was to be the greatest or was the greatest. It's nonsense. But that's what the disciples were before, before Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's, that's how it was. You know, when Jesus was talking about Judas and didn't mention him by name, they were like, who, 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 who? Because they didn't actually know each other. They didn't know each other in the spirit, according to the spirit. They just knew each other according to the flesh. You know, and so what happened was they, they were like, who's, who's going to betray you? Is, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? You know, they just didn't know each other. And so when... We, say, we see here now, in this time, not, not the eager contention where, where they're, you know, considering and reputed rep, who's going to be reputed the greatest. But here in the upper room now, there's been this transformation and they, are, they have their minds in full agreement. So they've gone from being, we don't even know who among us is going to betray Jesus, to we're in full agreement of mind. Their minds are in full agreement. They devoted themselves steadfastly to prayer in full agreement. What an amazing, amazing transformation. The resurrection changes everything. Do you know that? We, get, we only get full agreement. Do you know, we only get full agreement in any church community. There's one thing that we require for full agreement. Should I tell you what it is? You know it. It's Christ's presence. Every time Jesus turns up, you know, every time the Holy Spirit is here and, you know, we're going to be in full agreement because, because we turn our eyes on Jesus and we focus on him yeah. and we become into alignment with him and we come into full agreement with each other. You know, that's how it, that's how it works. There's no other way. We can't, we can't humanly, you know, make full agreement. Yeah. It only comes through Jesus being there. You know, um, and it was funny this morning in the prayer meeting because we had full agreement. There was three of us um, to begin with, and it was like Maria and Abby and myself. And Abby says, oh, you know what I was looking at this morning? I was looking at unity. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we're looking at today, full agreement, unity. Um, and she reminded me, you know, Psalm 133, you know, when you have unity, the Lord commands a blessing. The, the Lord commands a blessing. So again, how can we not have Holy Spirit turn up when we have unity? And he gets us through the Holy Spirit into that place of unity. So we walk in it. The word for full agreement in Greek, apparently, is homothomadon. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, but essentially, it says this in, in the Blue Letter Bible. It says this, a unique Greek word used in 10 of its 12 New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts helps us to understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. It is a compound of two words, meaning to rush along and in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. As the instruments of a great concertmaster, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church. 
That's an amazing quote, isn't it? I'll read it again because I just think it's, it's really fantastic. A unique Greek word used in 10 of his 12 New Testament occurrences in the book of Acts. It helps us to understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. It's a compound of two words, meaning to rush along and in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. As the instruments of a great concertmaster, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of the members of Christ's church. The uniqueness of the Christian community. There is no other community on earth that has unity. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. The, the unity created by the apostles and others coming together in full agreement with the Holy Spirit there, it was so dynamic, it was so pleasing to the resurrected Christ that the Father couldn't help but send his Spirit, you know, to join them and be further part of this union. Why, why did the Holy Spirit come in such power at Pentecost? Because there was such agreement that he wanted to be part of it, because it commands a blessing. So the church with the resurrected Christ as its centre can only glorify Jesus because its whole focus is on Jesus. It's about putting aside all the differences we might have, you know? Interestingly, the next, the next word, the occurrence of that word is in Acts 2.46, which says, day after day they regularly assembled in the temple with united purpose. That's the same thing. Uh, and in their homes broke bread, including the Lord's Supper. They partook of their food with gladness and simplicity and generous hearts. So what a community, you know. What a community. The fourth aspect of Acts 1 that I want to just briefly consider is that of prayer. It says the apostles and others devoted them steadfast, themselves steadfastly to prayer in verse 14. And this thing of rushing along in unison speaks of expectancy and urgency in relation to prayer. As in communion, in community, they seek communion with the Lord. They have communion with the Lord. So the most dynamic thing that we can do in life, the most dynamic thing we can do in life is actually pray together. Do you know that? It's actually, it's actually our prayer together is the most dynamic. It becomes us rushing along in, uni in unison when we pray together. You know, it's, it's what David Powell talks, talks about sometimes about joining in with the divine dance, you know, is that stuff um, that happens as we come into that community and uni unity and union with the, and, uh, union with the Trinity. Wow. The fifth aspect that we can learn from in Acts 1 is this. It's a small three-letter word. Let me see if you can spot it in verse 14. Um, all of these with their minds in full agreement. Do you see it? Somebody mentions it. All of these with their mind in full agreement. All of these. The full agreement that they, that they had in the upper room between, between the Ascension and Pentecost was the agreement of all the people present. Everyone. There was no one in the upper room who was not engaged or who was just the bystander, who was just coming along for the ride. Every one of them was completely engaged. That's what that tells us. No one was irrelevant. No one was insignificant. No one who was meant to be there was missing. Everybody was there. And the same is true now. And we know that we're, we, I know that we're all really familiar with Paul's analogy of the body of Christ. You know, you've, you, we, we know that analogy that, that Paul uses in, in Corinthians. You know, that every part has particular importance. But it was funny because there was a point in Bobby's conference um, a couple of weeks ago where the Lord spoke to me about this, but he spoke to me about it in the most bizarre way. The guy on, on, you know, on the platform was speaking about about love and, and, and such and God pouring, pouring out um, and about that stuff and you know, how, how essentially we can all be involved. And, and the Lord spoke to me from a passage in Judges. And do you know those passages in the Old Testament that you, go, you, you kind of read them and you're like, don't know why that's in the Bible, but we'll move through it. And, you know, but you see, the Lord spoke to me through one of those passages. It's the strangest passage. I'll read it to you. Judges 1, 5 to 7. Okay, this is, this is really important because it's about, this relates to the body of Christ and spiritual warfare. Okay, look at this. Judges 1, 5 to 7. 
and they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they smote the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have had to gather their food under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And the Lord spoke to me from this passage, which was quite funny, really. Um, Adoni Bezek, the Lord Bezek, that means, um, he defeated many kings. I think he's a picture of evil, this guy. You know, he's defeated many kings, you know. But how did he subdue them? Just cut off their thumbs and cut off their big toes, you know. Thumbs and big toes aren't a big deal. Well, your big toe's a big deal when you stub it, right? You know, when you, you know when you stub your toe? All of a sudden, even the smallest toe can feel like a big deal when we stub our toe. But thumbs and toes for a warrior are hugely significant because you can't hold a sword without a thumb and you can't stand in battle without a toe. So what does this mean about, about spiritual warfare? Even the smallest body of Christ, part of the body of Christ, is necessary. And, and if that person th considers themselves unimportant and neglects their role in the body of Christ, we're unable to stand unified in battle against the enemy so effectively. So we need to have every single thing. We cannot be missing a big toe. We cannot be missing a thumb. Because if we do so, our effectiveness against the enemy is inhibited. Mm, the thumb is apostolic. We see the same thing spelled out in the New Testament. Um, slightly easier passage, perhaps, for it. Um, is, um, it and it's um, in Paul, when Paul writes to Timothy. It's actually spelled out in both of the letters Paul writes to Timothy. You, we know the famous verse in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.6, which says, you know, Paul exhorts Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God has for him. That's very, very well known, that verse. Um, we know that Timothy was evidently timid or reluctant to step up, perhaps. And I'm not surprised when you actually read about the Ephesian church. Do you know some people think that the Ephesian church had 50,000 members? Yeah? We kind of sometimes look at it and we think, oh, just a group of people sitting around in a home somewhere. This was a massive church, you know? And, I, and that's another sermon altogether, talking about Ephesians. I, I love... Um, the way that Ephesus as a church gets planted. Um, but um, Timothy is timid and he needs to step up. That's what, that's what Paul reminds him, you know. I, I kind of sympathize with Timothy a bit, um, seeing the magnitude of his task. But if we get back to 1 Timothy, there's this as well. 1 Timothy 1, 3. As I urged you when I was on my way to Macedonia, stay, where you, stay on where you are at Ephesus in order that you may warn and admonish and charge certain individuals not to teach any different doctrine. So that's 2 Timothy 1, 3. Stay on where you are at Ephesus. And then the next thing, one, so 1 Timothy 1, 3 that is, 1 Timothy 1, 18. This charge and admonition I commit in trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with prophetic intimations which I formerly received concerning you, so that, inspired and aided by them, you may wage the good warfare. It's so interesting, isn't it? We can look back at the church. I think this water's for me. I'm going to have it anyway. Um, thank you. Think about this. Without Timothy using his gifts... The church in, in Ephesus was in danger of corruption through false doctrine. That's what, that's what we're told in that letter. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting how a fragile situation can be turned around with the presence of one anointed individual who's charged to use their gifts in the body of Christ? One anointed individual, you know. And that could be somebody in the background. It doesn't need to be a Timothy who's preaching. It could be somebody else. But do we even ever consider that the gifts that we have, when we use them, that's actually waging spiritual warfare? Oh, I'm only tidying up. I'm only putting the chairs out. I'm only, you know, doing a bit of administration. You know, you got, you got nailed on that, didn't you, a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's waging war against the enemy when we use our gifts, even if it looks to us the most natural thing 
you know. And you know what? We need to purge the body of Christ of false humility, you know, and be confident in who we're made to be individually. Because every person, every person is called with gifts. There's nobody who doesn't have the gifts. And this is why the waiting is important, partly, because in the waiting is when we give our yes to Jesus so often. You know, in that worship that, that Jennifer and Bola gave us, you know, there was that, that's where God's working in our hearts. So it may, look, it may look like nothing is happening. It may look like it's the same old, same old. But actually, things change in the waiting because we give our yes to Jesus during the waiting. And there's some people here, perhaps, who, who are challenged to give their yes to him in a greater way, and that's, that's a good thing. So I'd, I'd just say to you, I'd encourage you to do that. You see, like Timothy in the body of Christ in Ephesus, didn't really realise his role there, and so Paul had to urge him to stay there. You know, many believers today don't really know what they bring to the body of Christ. And so... They don't think their role is really important. They underestimate their influence. They consequently move on to another fellowship or just don't go to church or don't, just don't grow because they don't use what they're created to be. Our place in the body of Christ is so specific. You know, it's like with Jesus creates, you know, God creates each of us as individuals. God relates to each of us as individuals. He loves us each individually. He equips us with individual gifts and talents, you know. There's no easy replacement for, for you. There's no easy replacement. The Lord can't just bring somebody else. Oh, never mind about, about when. We'll just replace her with somebody else. That's not how it works. That's not how it could work. Don't worry. You're not going anywhere, are you? Um, but but, but um, there's, there's no easy replacement, you know, because we're all called for a purpose. Let's think about it in context of Acts 1 again then. You know, you think about it like it's enormously significant that in Acts 1 there's quite a few verses taken up with Peter standing in front of the other apostles and saying, we've got to get another apostle to replace Judas. That's enormously significant. That Pentecost can't happen until that's happened. Because, you know, when Pentecost happens, 3,000 people get added to their number that day, right? If they don't have the right people in the right places, when those, peop when those people are added, what's going to happen? The whole thing would be like falling apart. Can you imagine the, the logistical headache, you know? I can't imagine, like, imagine Jonathan Gooding have to set up 3,000 chairs next week. That would be really hard, hardcore, wouldn't it? We would have to have other people, you know, other than Jonathan set, set, setting up the chairs and obviously Lewis and Jason as well. But, but you know, it's, it's enormously logistical you know the lord knows about administration just as he knows about prophecy and he knows about you know the apostolic anointing you know people have those anointings you know and they're required they're needed so don't ever think that your that your gift is one that you can't use every disciple was vital to the lord all 12 of them that's why matthias had to replace judas you know and we see it again in Acts chapter 6, don't we? Because we see the apostles um, having this problem, this logistical problem, which is that the church has grown and grown and grown, like really rapidly, like super rapidly. And the, the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, complaining about the Hebraic Jews' widows, their widows being overlooked because because of a cultural issue perhaps or something like that and so what they do is they get seven men and they you know they commission those seven men so that the apostles themselves can continue the work that they have for God to do but what happens it says this in Acts 6 7 it says and the message of God kept on spreading this is after these seven guys have been appointed to wait on tables I mean they're just waiting on tables right doesn't turn out like that with Stephen, but there you go. Um, and the message of God kept on spreading, and the number of his disciples multiplied greatly, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And besides, a large number of priests were obedient to the faith. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. So in Acts 2, we have the number of disciples being added to. Then it goes into multiplication. And that's because the administration is ready for the body to grow. That's super important, yeah. So, how does this pertain to us at Commonwealth? That is brilliant. Yeah. Today, 
Can I encourage every single one of us to know that we're called here for a purpose? We're valued and we're loved. We know that we're valued and we're loved. But we're not, it's not, it doesn't stop there because we each step in to use our gifts to help build his kingdom. We each get to encourage each other in their gifts as well. And the gifts, we use our gifts in our fellowship and our lives and he deepens our relationship. He advances his kingdom through us. God's promised that he's doing a new thing. You know, we need to ensure we're ready for this new thing. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And as we come along and have fellowship with each other, can I challenge each one of us to consider how we can stir each other up to love and good deeds, all the more as we see the day approaching? Hebrews 10, 24. As we do, we see this small fellowship of believers go into the world and reach the world for him. Holy Spirit is equipping fellowships of believers that so model him, that so model him, that anyone who comes in is amazed by the love that they see and that they experience. He's looking for fellowships of believers whose daily rhythm is so aligned to his purposes so that every place they go, they bring the frag- his fragrance into those circumstances. As individuals, as you go out of here, you bring his fragrance into your circumstances. This small group of believers... You know, in full agreement, sold out for him, can only bring him much glory. He commands a blessing. This is how he operates, you know. Gideon's army, 300 people, kicked out the Midianites, destroyed them, you know. And how many Midianites were there? As many as the sand on the seashore, right? Read it and and know it. There are so many times in history that bear this out. And each is different because Holy Spirit never does the same thing twice. He, he's, he's always doing new things. Okay, But I, wanna just, I just want to just leave us with one story, which I have actually talked about before. And as many of you will know, is my, one of my favorite things to look at. One of my favorite stories of how the Spirit has moved in the past. And I just want to... I don't want you to listen to this and just think of it as a nice story, right? Because that would be easy to do, and it is a nice story. But what I want you to do is I want you to listen to this and think that this is a testimony of the risen Jesus and what God does before, he will do again, okay? Don't, don't, don't think of this story I'm about to give you as being something which is like, you know, something from the past 300 years ago that is just like old and dusty. This is a story which pertains to what God is, is, is doing among us. It's a testimony from history of God's faithfulness. Okay, and this is it. Okay, what God did in southern Germany in August 1727, he can do again in Clapham Junction in 2023. I'm going to talk about the Moravians. I'm doing this partly because Izzy's here and Izzy's mum is from Moravia. So, um, so, um, I've got a passion for the Moravian church, okay? The Moravian Pentecost. I don't know if anyone's heard of it, but this is it. Okay, listen and be encouraged. I'm actually referring, when I talk about the Moravians, I'm actually referring to a small group of refugees. Refugees who fled religious persecution and they settled in southern Germany. They moved from Moravia, which is where the Czech Republic is now, and they settled in southern Germany on the land of of a man called Count Zinzendorf in 1722. Zinzendorf himself was a remarkable figure. Okay, this guy, I mean, I'm not, I could go off on one about him. He, he, when he was four, he asked his parents the question about pre, you know, you know, predestination. He asked, he was, I mean, he was a, a very intelligent, remarkable figure. He was a man of noble birth, but he had a big conversion in his youth. You know, it was in front of a painting. And, and, um, and, um, his motto was this, I have one passion, it is Jesus, Jesus only. And he had a passion for prayer and he dedicated his life to serving Jesus and he committed his life to seeing the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. And so these small group of refugees, numbering 30 households, 220 people, including 87 children, settled on his land. And they called the settlement Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. And from 1722 to 1727, this small community struggled. They experienced dissension, bickering, bitterness, judgment against each other. And hearing this, Zinzendorf moved out of his big palatial, you know, palatial mansion, you know, it'd be a castle, I guess, (laughs) into their community. 
And he went from home to home and he preached the cross of Christ and he pleaded with the community to forgive each other, to live in reconciliation with each other, to grow in love for one another. Then on May the 12th, 1727, the Holy Spirit began to move in a deeper way when they all signed an agreement, which they called the Brotherly Agreement, dedicating their lives to the service of Jesus Christ. And then on July the 22nd, 1727, the community also covenanted to meet in, often in prayer and worship. Zinzendorf had a special love for children since he had experienced God from his youth. He would spend significant time discipling the children and praying for an outpouring of the Spirit on them. One night in early August, the Holy Spirit touched <coughs> touched sorry touched four of the children deeply. These children, along with the adults, began praying for a mighty move of the Holy Spirit. Over the course of the summer of 1727, the Moravian community came together in unity and full agreement. And they became ready to receive that fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. And on August the 5th, Zinzendorf and 14 others spent the night in prayer. On August the 10th, their pastor was so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that he sank down into the dust in the presence of the Lord. That's what an eyewitness said. The entire community followed and continued until midnight in prayer, singing and weeping. On August the 13th, 1727, they had a service in which Zinzendorf shared a sermon on the cross and the glory of the Lamb. Then after further confession of sin and reconciliation, they came to the communion table together and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. This was so powerful that many of, it, many of them referred to this as the Moravian Pentecost. That's how it's become known. They received a baptism of the love of God poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit and it spilled out in extraordinarily extraordinary love for one another. It led to continual prayer. The children prayed until 1am from the 13th until the 17th. Then they went on singing each evening through the village in their homes, whereby the mother of one of the one told her daughter, excuse me, to be quiet and not cry so loud, you're waking up the whole area. That's her daughter in prayer. I quote, on the 23rd of August, this is 10 days later, a spirit of prayer gripped the boys and girls so that no one could listen to them without being moved to the heart. And there was an extraordinary move in their meetings. On August the 29th, from 11 till 1 a.m., there was a heart-moving prayer, praying and singing from the girls. At the same time, the boys were lying in another place in prayer. It was such a powerful move of the spirit amongst the children that words failed to describe it. And this move of revival among the children had a great influence on every inhabitant of Hernhut. On August the 26th, three days later, the Moravians launched their 24-7 prayer movement, a canopy of prayer with 24 men, 24 women, committed to praying for an hour a day. A person would commit to the same hour each day. They called it hourly intercession, and it included seven of the young girls. You know, we have a 24-7 prayer movement now. You know, Pete Gregg has kind of put that together, and it's fantastic, it's amazing. But this prayer chain from the Moravians lasted 100 years. A hundred years of 24-7 prayer. And they didn't pray in one location, but in their normal lives, in their homes, on walks, during work breaks, wherever they were, they would be praying. You know, they'd be praying in twos and threes during that, their committed hours of prayer. And their, state, their mission statement was one on the field, one at home, one to pray and one to go. Each morning and evening they worshipped as a community. It was under this canopy of day and night prayer that God began to mark missionaries to carry the, gospels to the, the gospel to the ends of the earth. As Zinzendorf's passion for Jesus grew, so did his passion for the lost. And he became determined to evangelise the world, the world with a handful of saints, equipped only with the burning love for Jesus and the power of prayer. The Moravians recognised themselves in debt to the world as trustees of the gospel. They were taught to embrace a lifestyle of self-denial, sacrifice and prompt obedience. They followed the call of Jesus on their lives wherever he took them. The Moravians beautifully explain their motivation for missions in the following report from, from 1791. It says this, The simple motive of the brethren for sending missionaries to distant nations was and is an, uh, an ardent desire to promote the salvation of their fellow men by making known to them the gospel of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. It grieved them to hear of so many thousands and millions of the human race sitting in darkness and groaning beneath their yoke of sin and the tyranny of Satan, and remembering the glorious promises given in the word of God, that the heathen should also be the reward of the sufferings and death of Jesus, and considering his commandments to his followers to go into the world 
and preached the gospel to every creature. They were filled with confident hopes that if they went forth in obedience unto and believing in his word, their labour would not be in vain for the Lord. They went forth in the strength of their God and he has wrought wonders on their behalf. In total, from this community, 226 missionaries scattered around the world. They were tent-making missionaries. They served communities first with their trade and working among the people. And it's estimated that these 226 established over 5,000 missionary settlements across the globe. The Moravians experienced a deep sense of community, maintained through small groups based on common needs and interested, interests original and unifying hymns, Zinzendorf wrote 1500 hymns, and continual prayer meetings. In 1738, John Wesley said, he visited this happy place, he went to Hernhut, and he said, he was so impressed that he commented in his journal, I would gladly have spent my life there, here. Oh, when shall this Christianity cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as the water covers the sea? Amen. So if God can do it there in 1727, he can do it now, in 2023. And that's, that's our prayer this afternoon. Amen. So, Father, we just give you thanks this morning, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you stir us up. We thank you, Lord, that, that you are the Lamb of God, Jesus, who took away the sin of the world. We thank you, Lord, that we can be confident Lord, we can be confident that you are moving. We can be confident, Lord, and expectant that you haven't finished with us yet. Lord, we, we're confident that you have great power, that, that, that you're stirring up in this fellowship, Lord. We're confident, Lord, that, that you have called us, Lord, to live holy lives and to bring, to bring many, many people, many thousands of people into, the, into your kingdom, Lord. And so, Lord, we, we just thank you, Lord, for that. And, Lord, today, just even this, even this afternoon, Lord, may each one of us go from this place prepared, Lord, to just wait and linger with you, Lord, so that when we've waited and lingered, Lord, we can then go out and change the world for your glory. Lord, just, just, give, us, just give us that wisdom. Give us that, that understanding that we need in every situation, Lord. We just love you, Lord. We love to see, we, and we, we just want to see you glorified and magnified, Amen. made bigger, lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 